You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 160, The Early War at Sea, Part 10, Early U-Boat Campaigns. This week, a big thank you goes out to James for deciding to become a member to support the podcast. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. When war was declared between Germany and Great Britain on September 3, 1939, the Battle of the Atlantic started as the German U-boats began their attacks on enemy merchant shipping. The early months of the Battle of the Atlantic would be unique in many ways. First of all, the U-boats were acting under very stringent rules of engagement that were not what Raider or Donuts or the rest of the Kriegsmarine believed was what they needed for victory. These rules would not be changed until later in the month, and they were really driven by political concerns. This resulted in an interesting statistic that during September 1939, about one quarter of all ships that were sank by U-boats were actually put under the waves by the U-boats' deck guns instead of by torpedoes. During this time, the U-boats were also under orders to attempt to rescue the crew, a risky procedure that forced the U-boat to remain on the surface and in the area of the attack for far longer than they really wanted. But even with these handicaps, the U-boat fleet would very quickly have an impact on the war, an impact that will be discussed this episode before then also discussing the curious case of the British anti-submarine strike forces, which would be a debacle of the highest order. But in front of any other challenge that was faced by the Kriegsmarine's U-boat fleet was simply the challenge that there were never enough of them. This was at least partially due to the fact that Germany was not allowed to build U-boats until after the Anglo-German Naval Treaty was signed in 1935, which allowed them to build 24,000 tons of U-boats. With this allowance, 12,500 tons would be used to order and assemble 36 U-boats that had been planned and partially built before the agreement was signed. This allowed for a quick burst of construction, which allowed most of these U-boats to enter the fleet in 1936. But after this initial burst, things would greatly slow down, and there would be a major difference in how Donuts and Raider believed the remaining 11,500 tons should be spent or should be used. Donuts was heavily focused on what he believed was the best available submarine design for interdicting British trade in the North Atlantic and Western approaches, which was the Type 7 medium submarine. The Type 7 and its later variants would go on to be the most numerous German submarine of the war years, but in the mid-1930s there was some debate about whether or not it was the best possible option. Others within the German Navy preferred to build several different types of submarines, with smaller versions that were better suited for action in the North Sea, and larger submarines which were capable of longer-range operations at the cost of performance. These larger Type 9s did not have the dive speed or maneuverability of the Type 7s, and Donuts believed that this would make them very vulnerable in a combat environment. They would also take much longer to build, which would slow the overall growth rate of the German U-boat forces. 
The support for the Type 9s primarily came from their greater radius of action and their ability to stay on station longer, which was an important factor in German U-boat operations because the Type 7s would spend a lot of time going from ports in Germany to the Atlantic and they would have a limited window where they could stay at sea before having to make their way back. This problem would be reduced by the capture of the French ports in 1940, but that is not something that could be planned for or counted on during the mid-1930s when the Germans were forced to make these design decisions. The disagreements around the type, and then some construction challenges, and then the emphasis placed on the Type 9s resulted in only one German U-boat being commissioned in 1937. Then in 1938, only nine would be commissioned, and then in the first months of or first eight months of 1939, only 12. Much like the other arms of the Kriegsmarine, there were major plans for expansion of the U-boat forces under Plan Z, but also like the other areas of the Kriegsmarine, no real work had started on these Plan Z submarines before the start of the war. But of course, you go to the war with the fleet that you have. And so the official movement of the German U-boat forces from a peacetime footing to a wartime footing would begin on August 15th, about two months before the war would begin. On that date, an order would be sent out to all senior staff officers and U-boat commanders to report to Donitz's headquarters on the 19th. During this meeting, the first war orders would be given to the 20 ocean-going U-boats that would be prepared for war in late August. It's worth noting that Germany had two different arms of its U-boat fleet. The first were the ocean-going U-boats, the ones that I just mentioned, which were capable of working in the Atlantic Ocean. But then there were also many smaller coastal U-boats that would spend their time in the North Sea, primarily on mine-laying operations. The available ocean-going U-boats would be split into a few different flotillas, with each given a patrol area. The Salzwedel flotilla would be comprised of six Type 7s, which would patrol just west of the British Isles. The Wegener flotilla with six Type 7Bs, with the primary improvement being a much higher fuel capacity, were assigned a similar patrol zone, but it was shifted further west out into the Atlantic. Finally, the Hundes flotilla would have five of the long-range Type 9s, and it would patrol further south, around the Iberian Peninsula and the approaches to the Strait of Gibraltar. Importantly, all of these submarines would be acting under the 1930 Submarine Protocol, an international agreement that Germany was a signatory of, which contained the agreements about how ships could be attacked by submarines. Most importantly, they could not be sunk without warning. As mentioned earlier, this was a decision made with the understanding that it would drastically reduce the effectiveness of U-boats and expose them to great danger. But the hope was that by showing this restraint, it would be more likely that a peace could be brokered with France and Britain after the invasion of Poland was complete. On September 3rd, just before 1pm Berlin time, a message was sent to all vessels and shore installations of the Kriegsmarine, quote, hostilities with England effective immediately. Now, you might notice something a bit weird about this message. Hostilities with England effective immediately. That's correct. In the hopes that France might be convinced to exit the war, the U-boats were not allowed to attack any French ships. To further clarify this specific part of the earlier order, a few hours later a message was sent that said, quote, Boats are to take no hostile action against French merchant ships for the present, except in self-defense. End quote. This order further restricted the targets available to the U-boats and their ability to have an impact on the war. Almost more importantly, 
it greatly impacted their ability to attack at night, which is one of their most potent tactics. This is because even though the U-boats could operate underwater, they were generally better able to attack merchant ships if they were on the surface, and the only time that that was possible was at night. But it was essentially impossible to identify a merchant ship from, you know, and what their country of origin was in the darkness of the night. Even with all of these restrictions, it would take just a few hours before the first U-boat attack of the war would be launched by the U-30, commanded by Fritz Julius Limp. Limp believed that when he spotted a British ship, it was armed with deck guns, which would make it an auxiliary cruiser and a warship, which meant that he could attack it without warning. And so, at around 7.40pm, two torpedoes were launched and they hit the ship. The problem was that the merchant ship was not an auxiliary cruiser, but instead the SS Athenia, which was carrying around 1,100 passengers, including over 300 Americans. Now, I'm calling out the Americans here, specifically because it was incidents just like this, with ships like the Lusitania, that played such a major role in America entering into the First World War. And the new war that had just started was already seeing the same type of events just hours after hostilities had started. Fortunately for everyone aboard the Athenia, the ship would not sink quickly, and in fact it would remain afloat throughout the night, which allowed the vast majority of passengers and crew to evacuate the ship and to be rescued by other merchant ships and three British destroyers, which were dispatched to the scene. The final death toll was about 118. Reports of this attack would circle the globe very quickly, with the German government issuing an official denial of the incident, claiming that the Athenia must have hit a mine or something. However, an order would be sent out on September 4th, which stated that, quote, by order of the Fuhrer, no hostile action is to be taken for the present against passenger ships, even in convoy, end quote. Even under these restrictive rules, which seemed to get more restrictive almost by the hour, some of the U-boats would still be successful in their missions during these early days of the war, and one of the most successful was the Type 7B U-47, under the command of Gunther Prien. Prien would go on to be one of the most famous U-boat commanders of the war, although his relatively short period of time in active service before his death in early 1941 limited his total tonnage numbers. On September 5th, he would make his first attack of the war, when the U-47 spotted the Bosnia, a 2,400-ton British freighter about 300 miles west of the French coast. Obeying orders, the U-47 surfaced and fired a round from its deck gun at the freighter, which immediately increased speed and immediately began sending the U-boat attack radio message, which was SSS. Prien would then order four more rounds from the gun fired at the ship, with three of them hitting, at which point the crew abandoned the ship. The U-47 would go amongst the crew that was in the water and bring them aboard, before getting one of the freighter's lifeboats ready for them, before a Norwegian merchant ship arrived and the Bosnia's crew was loaded onto the Norwegian ship. After everyone was safely out of the way, a single torpedo was used to sink the Bosnia. It would not take long for Prien to find his next victim, when the Rio Claro, a 4,000-ton British freighter, was spotted on September 6th. Again, after firing one shell, the SSS signal started, so three more deck gun shots were fired at the bridge of the ship, which caused their radio signals to end, and for the crew to abandon ship. After the crew were in lifeboats, another torpedo was dispatched to sink the Rio Claro. The next day, another ship was spotted, the much smaller Gartavan, which was sank with fire from the deck guns after the first torpedo that was fired from the U-47 malfunctioned. 
which would become a theme for the German U-boat commanders in the early weeks and months of the war. While some of the German U-boat commanders were having their fun, I guess, in the Atlantic, another area of operation during the early weeks of the war was the North Sea. While the U-boat actions in the Atlantic would always be the most glamorous areas of U-boat operations, there was also important work being done in the North Sea. When the war started, there were 17 small submarines in the North Sea, which would begin both offensive and defensive operations against enemy shipping. Some of these U-boats were committed to mine-laying operations along the British coast, with a few of those minefields actually being very successful and sinking multiple British merchant ships in the weeks that followed. Other U-boats would be able to execute attacks against shipping in the North Sea, but they were frequently thwarted by the failures of the German torpedoes. For example, U-23, commanded by Otto Kretschmer, who would later become the most successful U-boat commander of the entire war, would fire four torpedoes at a single ship, all of which would fail to explode. Other submarines were far more successful, though, with a total of two ships sank by submarines in the North Sea before September 22nd, when the rules of engagement would be changed for the North Sea, allowing the U-boats to more proactively attack neutral shipping. The new rules of engagement would allow for 10 neutral merchant ships to be sank or captured in just one week. However, these successes resulted in protests from other neutral nations, especially those bordering the North Sea, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland. This resulted in another change of orders to bring back many of the previous restrictions on September 30th to try and reduce the anger from those neutral nations. Overall, the first month of operations in the North Sea were, were kind of disappointing, and the overall numbers only approached reasonable when the minefields were included, the effectiveness of those minefields. The one benefit of these early operations, even if it didn't result in a, in a lot of shipping sort of being sank or captured, would be that some of the most successful U-boat commanders of the entire war would get their first combat experience during these early operations in very small U-boats in the North Sea, and they would be able to use that combat experience to great effect in later months and years once they got larger U-boats that were capable of longer-range operations. Even though all of these operations were happening in the early days and weeks of the war, Donuts and the staff officers commanding Germany's U-boat forces had to start thinking about the future. This would result in orders being sent out on September 8th, which would order 10 of the 18 U-boats that were currently in the Atlantic to begin making their way back to Germany. On their way back, they could continue their operations as they would be traveling through rich target areas but they needed to come back to Germany to prepare for future operations. This was because when the initial wartime deployments began, essentially every operational U-boat in the Kriegsmarine was committed to those operations, and this left no reserves in Germany to replace them. So if every U-boat remained for its maximum cruise duration in September, there would essentially be no U-boats on patrol for a good portion of October. The only way to fix this was to preemptively draw down the strength on patrol in September so that the U-boats could return to port, they could rearm, resupply, and prepare for operations in October. This was not a great solution, but it was the only one available to solve for the fact that there simply were not enough U-boats available to achieve the goals of the U-boat campaign, and there were very few that would be added to the fleet in the short term. Due to the length of time it took to build a U-boat, it was well known how many U-boats would enter the fleet in late 1939 and early 1940, and the numbers were, were pretty grim. By March 1940, just six new medium-range or long-range U-boats would enter the fleet. That's six in about as many months. 
and in September, two ocean-going U-boats were already lost, a worrying trend that meant that already lost rates were above replacement rates. To make matters worse, at least in Donuts' mind, was the continual and constant pull to use the ocean-going U-boats for missions that were other, outside of those strictly focused on attacks on shipping, with constant calls for U-boats to perform mine-laying operations as far away as Gibraltar, which could only be reached by the large ocean-going U-boats. The mine-laying plans as written would have required the entire U-boat fleet to participate, essentially removing them from the trade routes for a sizable portion of time. This would be a constant battle for Donuts during the early years of the war, before he would replace Raider and gain full control of the Kriegsmarine. The root cause of this problem was simply numbers, though, and that problem could only be solved over a longer period of time. There would be a massive shift in resources from other naval construction efforts to submarines in the early months of the war, since they were faster and easier to build than the large capital ships that were part of Plan Z. But it would not be until late 1940 that any of these new U-boats would near completion, and it would be even longer before the fleet would grow in size at a reasonable rate. Another major problem was the fact that even when U-boats were on station and were able to locate shipping to attack, the torpedoes that they were firing were frequently failing completely. But this problem would take time to solve, not just because it had to be identified as a problem, but it would also take time before the engineers and staff officers in charge of torpedo design and construction were even convinced that there was a problem. They would instead blame the U-boat captains for simply missing their torpedo attacks, instead of believing the captains that the torpedoes were either hitting the target ships or getting close enough that their magnetic detonators should have caused an explosion. This would result in a very frustrating time for U-boat captains, and it would be that way for months before a resolution would be found. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While the Germans were having some challenges, mostly around numbers, the British had their own problems, one of which was based around one of their theories on how to combat the German U-boat threat, anti-submarine strike forces. This was an idea that was heavily supported by Churchill and was based around the theory that aircraft carrier-based aircraft and destroyers, working together, would be able to find and sink any submarine within range. If the U-boat tried to work on the surface, the carrier-based aircraft would spot it and attack, 
or at the very least force it to submerge where it would be slower. If the U-boat did submerge, then destroyers could move in and find and attack it with Aztec and depth charges. In theory, you could say that this was a reasonable idea, but there were two major problems that would not be solved before the war, or even during the war, once these hunter-killer groups were put into play. The first was that by using a carrier for anti-submarine work, you had to obviously put a carrier in an area with submarines, which was very dangerous. Carriers were big targets, and they were probably only second to battleships on the priority list for U-boat captains. If they found a carrier, they were probably going to do their best to sink it. The second major problem is that while this concept had its supporters, it had never really been tried, even in peacetime. This meant that the carriers and their aircraft and their pilots had very little experience hunting for submarines. Spotting U-boats from the air was at times very difficult, and even when they were spotted, there was no way for the aircraft to maintain any form of contact if they submerged. In theory, this would be the moment when the destroyers would come into play, but it took time for destroyers to arrive on the scene, giving the U-boat captains plenty of time to maneuver away. It also didn't help that there were generally only a handful of destroyers with a carrier, so if some of them were off in one area trying to find and sink a U-boat, there was very little to stop another U-boat from launching an attack on the carrier if they got lucky and found the carrier. Finally, even if the hunter-killer groups did sink some U-boats, the risk and reward was so heavily skewed towards risk that they needed to sink most of the U-boats in existence in late 1939 for the risk of a carrier to be worth it. The British were willfully risking an aircraft carrier, which they only had a handful of at the start of the war, which they would only complete under 10 of during the entire Second World War. And they were combating U-boats, which the Germans would build 1,100 of during the Second World War. To make it worth it, the hunter-killer groups needed to sink, I don't know, 100 submarines for every carrier lost. And that's just not how it would go. On September 14th, the weaknesses, but also the power, of the carrier-based anti-submarine strike forces would be on full display around the carrier Ark Royal. The action that day started well, with the strike force discovering the U-30 submarine and moving in for an attack. The Ark Royal turned into the wind to launch a flight of skuas to assist the destroyers, and in doing so, they became separated from the three destroyers that had stayed behind to screen the carrier. What none of the four ships knew was that the U-39, a Type 9, which was on its way back to base due to Donitz's recall order, had spotted the Ark Royal and was moving in to attack. At 3.07pm, the submarine launched three magnetic torpedoes, but they were either misaimed or malfunctioned, because none of them hit the Ark Royal. But they were spotted by the Ark Royal, and so the three destroyers moved in to attack the U-39. Within minutes, two of the destroyers had Aztec contacts with the submarine, and one of them moved in to attack while the other then did the same. In the meantime, the third destroyer was able to arrive and maintain the Aztec contact after the depth charges of the other destroyers had exploded, and then it moved in to launch its own attack. In total, 12 depth charges would explode near the U-boat, and the captain of the U-39, Gerhard Gladys, decided that the only option was to abandon ship. And so the tanks were blown so that the U-boat would surface, and all the crew could evacuate before scuttling charges exploded to send the U-boat below the waves. 43 of the crew were brought on board the British destroyers. Overall, this was a successful example of the theory of strike forces. 
but it was only possible because of the malfunction of the German torpedoes. If they had actually worked as designed, even one of the three, then it was very possible that the carrier would have joined the U-boat at the bottom of the ocean, which would have been a very, very poor trade. Speaking of poor trades, that brings us to the HMS Courageous, which was another British aircraft carrier that would also encounter two U-boats just three days after the Ark Royal on September 17th. The situation for the Courageous was not that much different than what had happened to the Ark Royal. Two U-boats, the U-53 and the U-29, had been sent towards an expected position of a British convoy, which just so happened to be the same path as Courageous. On September 17th, the Courageous would launch a flight of swordfish to attack the U-53 after it had been spotted, with the swordfish launching their ineffective attack on the U-53 shortly thereafter. On the same afternoon, the U-29 spotted the Courageous and tried to move into an attack position, but the British carrier was simply too fast for the U-boat to catch. As long as it was sailing away from the U-boat, the German U-boat could never catch it, until the carrier had to turn into the wind to allow for landing operations to begin. This brought the carrier right into the perfect path for the U-29 to launch an attack, with three torpedoes launched at a range of about 2,700 meters, with the range rapidly closing because the two ships were approaching one another. Two of the torpedoes would hit after running for just over two minutes. Two of the escorting destroyers moved in to attack the U-29 and would eventually use all of their depth charges without successfully sinking the U-boat. On the Courageous, there was no warning until the torpedoes exploded under the ship at 7.55 p.m. The two hits severed the electrical main, which cut all power aboard the ship, and disabled the radios. As water poured into the ship through the holes created by the torpedoes, the decision taken that day for some of the important watertight doors called X-doors to remain open, allowed water to freely move throughout the ship. The X-doors were supposed to remain shut at all times, but orders had been given for some of them to remain open for ventilation purposes. It might not have caused the sinking, but it certainly did not help what was about to happen. The carrier immediately took on a list that would quickly increase, and it was clear that the ship was going down. The problem was that the heavy list made the starboard side lifeboats unable to be launched, while on the port side several of the boats had been destroyed or were inoperable. This meant that most of the crew just had to swim for it. The carrier would sink just 15 minutes after the torpedo struck, giving the men on board only a very limited amount of time to abandon ship. The accompanying destroyers would do the best that they could, with the impulsive pulling 350 men out of the water and the Dido over 200, while they were also joined by several nearby merchant steamers. In total, of the 1,260 crew of the Courageous, just 741 men were rescued. That means 519 were killed. Immediately after the news of the Courageous reached the Admiralty, the other carriers that were performing anti-submarine duties were withdrawn, while the entire concept was re-evaluated. Meanwhile, the U-29 and its captain Otto Schuhart would be able to claim the sinking of the Courageous along with two British tankers during their single patrol at the beginning of the war, which would be a single patrol tonnage record that would stand for some time, at around 42,000 tons. Overall, the sinking of the Courageous was a huge victory for the U-boats, for the Kriegsmarine, for the German war effort as a whole, and for the Royal Navy, the sinking of the Courageous would be a major blow, but it would not be the only U-boat attack on a Royal Navy capital ship 
in the opening months of the war. Next episode, we'll discuss the actions of the U-47, which would make its way into Scapa Flow in mid-October 1939. 